Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today is Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning, Gaines. This is what happens when you're never on the podcast with us. No, I know. No. Just, do that. Just, just say that over again. No, it's good. Let's no, keep, no, let's no. It's, good. it's going it's, just it's, like that. Yeah, it stays. No. It stays. It's too, it's too good. And to be no. fair, I did trip you up there because I didn't actually say your name properly either. So there do we it, go. Do it, do, it, do it properly. Do it yeah. properly. We don't want this one to be a bad podcast. Yeah. And we have Johnny Sisson in Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. Hello, Johnny. <laughs> Oh, good morning, everybody. And yes, it, it is snowing here. I just want to just, you know, I, it's become customary, I think, for me to do the weather report from Chicago. And it and it's it's snowing again. So. You don't want me to tell you that it's 90 degrees Fahrenheit here in Florida. and that we're gonna I, You know, I don't care about because you're in Florida. There, right? And I, I, it doesn't matter how nice it is in Florida. You can't entice me to go to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I would come to Gainesville. You're, you're in the sane part of Florida. Yeah. So. I would do that. Okay. Well, moving on. This is this is usually the point where I give a thank you to our previous week's guest or guests. And last week we had M from Emulsif and Hamish Gill from uh, 35MNC. But instead of that, we're going to move straight on to introducing somebody that uh, is not going to plunge the show into complete chaos for the third week running. Um, so to give a proper introduction to our guest, I'm going to hand back over to Johnny. All right. Uh, so not that I'm ever really yet doing anything proper, but I'm going to try my best. Um, and Simon, as we know, is, the, is the, the master of the introduction, and I am not, but I'm going to try. So joining us this week from Brookline, New Hampshire, is Jason Lane. Um, now, Jason Lane um, came to my attention, actually, as J. Lane Dry Plates and uh, Pictoriographica. I believe I've said that right. Very good. Um, Okay, yeah, which is his his uh, website slash business of making glass dry plates, um, and yeah, I've geeked about out about this for the past few weeks, and I'm still geeking out about it, and I'm I'm really happy to have uh, Jason joining us. And so the thing that I did not know about Jason until we started chatting was that that Jason is actually a lens designer by profession for the past almost twenty years. Um, and we got talking about that. And of course, I'm already thinking about, you know, hijacking them onto the podcast as we're doing right now. Um, but it, as it turns out, he, he, he really does know all about this stuff. In fact, as we will find out today, much more than any of the hosts here do. So, um, so just to, you know, Jason, his background, as I said, he is a lens designer by, by, by trade. Um, he, his, uh, interest in optics. Uh, sparked his interest in originally astronomy and astrophotography and then later in photography. And then in 2017, late in 2017, he started J Lane Dry Plates, which, as I just mentioned, is his business where he makes um, sensitized glass plates, which is um, an old photographic process that I'm sure we will, we will dive into right now because without further uh, uh, hesitation, Jason, hello, and thank you for joining us. Hello, it's my pleasure to join you guys. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, we are we are glad to have you. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess we'll, maybe to just uh, to to dive in, if you want to tell us a little bit about your background as a lens designer and sort of the yeah, sure. sort of projects, I guess, that you've worked on, and you know where your interests in that lie, both professionally and I guess personally as well. 
Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll give you the the whole rundown. Um, I actually am not a lens designer by by degree. I, my degree is uh, I have a, a bachelor and a master's in electrical engineering, uh, but I have never done uh, EE work after leaving college because what happened was um, my last semester as an undergrad, I took a classic optics course uh, that was offered to the to the um, to the EE department. And uh, I was just absolutely fascinated with optics because as opposed to electricity, you can actually see what you, what the important, uh, you know, what the photons are doing. Um, electrons, you can't unless there's, there's a problem. So I stuck around in grad school, uh, took some, uh, some photonics classes and electromagnetics classes, which are closely related to how light propagates and uh, was hired out of uh, was hired by the Navy out of college as a uh, optical engineer and uh, I, uh, I I grew up and went to school in uh, northern Arkansas southern Missouri and moved out to California to work for the Navy out there where I basically taught myself lens design on the job so I kind of had to learn it on the fly because in grad school in electrical engineering department, they had lots of classes about fiber optics and and uh, sort of the physics properties of, of light, but not lens design experience. So I learned it on the job, um, which was great because uh, in the departments that I worked in, uh, I was basically the only optical engineer. So I would make the design, work with optical shops to get the, the lenses fabricated, put them together myself, which tells you real quick what works and doesn't work for making lenses easy to assemble and then go test them. So it was a great sort of feedback loop um, for, for helping that. And uh, I did that for 10 years and then uh, moved to the private sector, moved out here to New Hampshire where I do lens design for defense and aerospace. Um, so I can't talk about a lot of the projects, but one really cool one is that um, sort of as a, as a side gig, I got a landed a contract to do the uh, the lens design for the replacement cameras on the Canada Arm Two, which is installed on the space station. So the that the Canada Arm is the robotic arm that they use to do inspection and grab the Soyuz capsules when uh, bring them in when they're being resupplied. And all the cameras on there are many years old and huh. need to be replaced. And so the, the prime is, is doing that. And I happen to get wow. the contract to do the lens design. So I have optics that will be going up <laughs> and being installed in, on the space station uh, next year or so. That is absolutely the coolest thing ever. Yeah. It's, <laughs> okay. uh, it's so, pretty flipping awesome. I, get, I just got, to, all right. So I, this, this question, I'm sure there are going to be lots of left field questions to some yes. degree here, because as we've talked off air, um, about this, that that there are three people here who style themselves as uh, lens, if not ac- experts, at least subject matter experts, who you know <laughs> rapidly are discovering this morning that we they don't know know anything about this stuff. So, um, <laughs> so what well, I what I, what well, <laughs> I well I mentioned I mentioned offline. You know, um, you guys are great because you have a good practical working experience with optics. Yeah, uh, my. My working experience in photography as a hobby is is with the the specific lenses that that I've used, 
Sure. Um, outside of that, it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's from the, from the design perspective. So, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's no, good. It's great. So my, my question is thinking of the project you've just mentioned, um, so that lens, it's going to go up on the space station. I'm assuming this is probably a, some sort of a, a wide angle lens that takes in, you know, a lot of information. Like you said, they're going to use it when they're docking, literally docking, you know, spacecraft to the space station, et cetera. Do, is a lens that is going to be used in that environment, which obviously is the vacuum of space, are there design considerations that have to be taken into account because it's going to be, you know, performing in a vacuum at whatever, I know there's a space temperature, but I know it's very right. cold. Um, and also, so, though it probably gets very hot, right, when it's in the sun. So I'm just curious right. about that now. Well, there, there's a couple things. One is the optics are, are sort of, they're not protected from the environment, but mm. um, they're, they are inside a box, which sort of regulates the environment down to the, the ranges, temperature, range temperatures that I'm used to working with. Mm. Um, but, you know, there, there are considerations in general for designing optics for temperature, especially when looking at doublets or uh, bonded doublets or triplets, where you have to ensure that as the, the, uh, the glass expands or contracts with temperature, Mm. That, that both glass types in the in a doublet are expanding at the same rate. Uh, otherwise, you get separation, which I'm sure you guys have seen in older optics in the uh, from the past. Yeah. Carl is actually our our in house expert on separation. So, <laughs> yeah, I've had a good example of that, haven't I? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Real, very disappointing. So but now I have the, now I have a good lens from you, Johnny. So everything's yeah. okay. Yeah, so when when you see lens separation in the past, very likely it, it's due to that, uh, where the uh, the uh, expansion, the thermal expansion, wasn't matched very well. Not mm. that they didn't miss that, but there, you know, there may be a, may have been limitations in the glass types. But as sure. far as that lens goes, it's actually it's kind of interesting. It was a challenge because it's replacing a zoom lens, okay, with an electronic zoom version, which is kind of cool, but. Um, the zoom on the original lens was a little nonlinear and that, that caused uh, some additional complexity that I basically, when you look at different uh, object distances, if you did the geometry, the field of view don't scale geometrically. There was, there was a one or 2% difference that oh. caused a, uh, caused a challenge. But uh, I, you know, I, I banged it out and uh, uh, I, had uh, partnered with a mechanical engineer and we worked on the optical me opto mechanical design partnered with an optical shop that put them together and and uh, so wow. far things are going great so so is there i mean is there a particular uh design like would you describe it as a, is it some sort of incredible hybrid design or is it basically a ba is it basically an x whatever type of lens that is then doing other things that you, you know what I mean? That you've designed into it to be able to do for that purpose. Uh, like that's no, I, I got you. So it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, a lens designers will break all the, all the designs down into different design families. You have the pets folds, which have certain characteristics. You have double gausses like the planars. Um, you have triplets like cooks and tessars. Uh, this was a, a wide field variant of a, of a, um, uh, 
this this is where my memory starts failing. But uh, it, <laughs> it, it it was a variant of of typical wide field of view lens lay, layouts. Not that the the field of view itself was very wide. I mean, it was like a fifty degree diagonal. But mm. um, what it morphed into to meet the requirements um, was something a bit different. Um, and it's kind of cool. It sort of is broken into two sections. One that the front section in front of the aperture stop that sort of uh, changes the magnification uh, that feeds into the, the main objective group uh, or focusing group. Um, but yeah, so it was a weird hybrid sort of different design that does some unique things to, to meet the challenges of the requirements. And wow. I guess that's a good point to make is that uh, when I'm looking at designing optics, um, you know, I'm, I'm not just picking a, picking a design and, and because I like it and going with it. I, I'm picking a design family uh, that I know will be able to uh, perform within the, the field of view and F number requirements usually mm. of, of, the, of the design uh, you know, the requirements that come down from the customer. Yeah. So, so is that, would you, um, is that the starting point generally for any lens design is obviously the, the field of view and, and the, the aperture, the maximum aperture that's going to be, be used? Usually, you, yeah, usually, uh, you know, those are considered sort of first order properties of a, of a lens, uh, field of view, focal length, uh, not focal length so much is, is not as important from a design perspective as you think, uh, but F number definitely. Uh, field of view and of course if there's any um, actual uh, like MTF requirements that need to be met that that sort of rolls into it too uh, from a lens designers I think uh, sort of categorize or at least I do for objectives categorize the design families uh, based on what field of view they can provide for a given focal length or a given image plane um, so Petzvolts, you know, uh, in the photography world, when we talk about a Petzvolt, we're thinking about that lens that Voigtlander made back in the 1840s that that uh, Josef Petzl designed. But in the in the intervening 160 years or 170 years, the Petzvolt has uh, sort of expanded to become a a group of lens design forms that are characterized by uh, an objective group up front, a, a, uh, a, a group of lenses in the back towards the image plane and an aperture in between and uh, a narrow field of view and really fast optics. So in fact, one of my other projects, uh, one, of the, one of the newest uh, fielded lenses out there is a, a Petzl design. It's actually a Petzl next to a double Gauss Next hmm. to an old Galilean telescope, so that's well. Uh, so when when I think of Petzl, I think of a very good way to to give a really fast narrow field of view um, lens. Not not too narrow. When you get when you get really narrow, like one one to five degrees, you start looking at telescope objectives. But in the yeah in the five to 15, 20 degree field of view range, Petzls are the way to go. Yeah, and 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 lo so so longer. Or, or will we say longer focal length or narrower field of view lenses are by by are fundamentally easier to 
design, right? Because they, they, they're, there's less, um, as you go wider, it seems that, that the lens designs have to become more complex. Is that generally true? Well, uh, it, you know, it, it sort of depends on what the, the uh, resolution requirements are. So, um, okay. So for example, for example, I have a Petzfeld next to a double Gauss in a, in a system. They're both the same field of view, but I needed to go to the double Gauss because it is capable of capable of higher resolution than the Petzval. And I think the, uh, the, uh, the spatial res resolution of, uh, the, the sampling frequency, I guess you could say, if you're familiar with that, you know, the, uh, which is related to the pixel pitch was like 220 line pairs per millimeter and the double Gauss, uh, 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 a, a slower like F3-ish, F4 double Gauss is, is perfect for that. Uh, mm. And with the caveat that, you know, uh, cost cost is uh, cost is always king. So an easy low cost yeah. way to, to achieve that sort of resolution. Uh, so another question real quick. I know the guys are chomping to the bit, but yep. I, it's just, you know, again, I, I think uh, um, a lot of these terms, again, us as experts, well, us as uh, subject matter experts styling ourselves as actual experts, um, there are terms that I know we're familiar with, right, that I think are still yes. certainly worthy of explanation. And I think the, the one that you've just mentioned is um, explaining how uh, lenses are measured in terms of resolution. Um, oh, and maybe you could yeah. you could talk a little bit about that to just sort of clarify uh, for everyone listening, really as a ba a baseline when we talk about lines per millimeter, that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, I guess one of the uh, this this came up in a in a topic conversation on one of the online forums recently was was uh, measuring the 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 resolution performance of a lens uh, using. Uh, spatial frequencies. So it's line pairs per millimeter or cycle per millimeter. And uh, I tried to make the point, maybe it fell on deaf ears that, uh, you know, if, if you, if you say something like this lens is capable of 50 line pairs per millimeter from a lens designer perspective, that that's sort of a nonsensical way to say it. And the reason I say that is while the line pairs per millimeter is important, you kind of have to know, you know that refers to a, a, a an MTF, a modulation transfer function. I'm sure you're familiar with. Maybe you're familiar with MTF curves or contrast transfer. And so you mm -hmm. kind of have to know what the magnitude of the MTF is that you're referring to. So if you just say 50 line pairs per millimeter, so is that the sampling frequency of the of the imager? Is that the 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 cutoff frequency of the optics, which is uh, which I hope it wouldn't. That'd be a bad lens. Or is it, uh, you know, 50% contrast at, at 50 line pairs per millimeter? So those caveats, you know, when I'm doing a, a, a design review, uh, usually what we'll see is uh, for, for the resolution performance is first the, the sampling frequency of the, um, of the imager. You know, so obviously I design optics for digital, digital Im imagers. Uh, so the sampling frequency is is uh related to the pixel pitch mm -hmm. and it doesn't really make sense to to design a lens you know track the performance above that um uh you know except in special cases i guess so 
in a design review, I expect to see an MTF plot um, out to at least that spatial frequency for the for not just the lens but also the system, because the lens is in the end it's just part of a, an imaging system, so that mm -hmm. that all rolls together. Um, and then so if there's a performance requirement, say I need um, uh, a ninety percent uh, MTF value at at uh, 20 line pairs per millimeter, then I want to see that the the design meets that requirement. So I want to see the MTF curve above that, not for the prescription itself, not for the paper prescription, but the output of the, the production line. So with tolerances, manufacturing mm -hmm. tolerances, uh, required yeah. tolerances stuff all rolled in. So, um, Right, because ultimately you, what, what we're talking about is pieces of glass that have to be precisely ground. Yeah, and, and, right. and obviously <laughs> added complexity is added cost. And I imagine at some point things break. I mean, you can't, I, there, there's got to be a point at which you just can't make, well, there probably is, but as you said, it's a cost factor, right? In terms yeah, of yeah. how a piece of glass is actually shaped. It could get very expensive if that if that design is incredibly right. Yeah, um, and complex. and obviously uh, lens designers are aware of that. So um, in my mind, uh, you know, my ideal, my perfect lens design isn't a screamer. It's a design that gives mm. just the the performance that's required at at low cost and and is easy to make. Because if yeah. you can't make a lens, then it's not a good lens at all. Is so, there, you know the, what? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, one of the beauties of of these classic designs, like the double gauss, and and just for reference, like the that's the like the protar. I th I think the you know your classic uh, normal field of view lenses, lens objectives, like the fifty millimeter fixed focus, are typically double gauss. Um, you know, the beauty of of these classical designs is that they could hit these performance, get really good performance with uh, relatively loose tolerances. Mm -hmm. And and that's important because they had to, they have to crank them out and you, you have to, you have to rely on the tolerances um, to, uh, to, to be able to crank them out like that without having to spend a lot of, a lot of time yeah. tweaking the radius of curvatures and making sure they're perfect. Now yeah. the beauty were, is that they're <laughs> not perfect lenses, you know, they deviate still, from the, yeah, but they're still really good. Yeah, that's great. It, it, you know, it reminds me of the, the sort of the, um, it's like an, it's like being an architect versus being a builder. Like architects can design whatever they want, but if it can't actually be built, there's a lot, you know what I mean? Right. It's like the story is in the building. It's like, you know, here in the Chicago area, Frank Lloyd Wright is really well known and there's, there's Wright houses everywhere. And, it's really funny if you go in them because it's like you see the tension between architecture and actual building um, that his, sometimes his, his designs were so complex that building them was really difficult and they don't hold up over time as in they leak and they start to disintegrate, you know? So, and right. I imagine it must be something similar to that with lens designs as well. That's uh, for, from my perspective, that's the difference between a good designer and a bad designer. So yeah. a good lens designer won't just come up with a prescription in, in ZMAX or Code 5, which are the design tools that we use, and then toss it over the wall. They'll, they'll follow it through 
um, production. And then, uh, you know, obviously when the prototypes are made, go out and field test it and roll yeah. that feedback into the uh, the next design iteration. And that's that's what I've always done. Like like sure. I said, early on in my career, I had the unique opportunity to to design optics, then go out and have them fabricated and then put them together myself. And that tells me really quick what works and doesn't work for making a nice lens. And and that uh, sort of hands-on experience um, was was a I mean, it was it was good. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, J- Jason, I'm yes. I'm just uh, I'm 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 sitting here fascinated by what you're you're talking about, and also uh, it's 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 a shame that our it's that we have no visuals on this because we we the three of us are just staring at uh, at the screen that you're um, oh, the, sharing uh, with us, and there's a no. there's a F two sonar of, of some description um, sitting on there at the moment, um, <laughs> which I'm just finding fascinating because I'm 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 working out chromatic aberration as I'm looking, uh, but I think we'll we we'll perhaps we'll come on to that um, later, um, but I'm yes. I'm just wondering now about because lens designs are, are getting currently increasingly more complex and the, the the classic lens world where they're thinking you don't need to do all of these things just just use something relatively simple and you, you can compare something like a, a rangefinder lens like uh, say one of the latest uh, Leica Summicron lenses Yes. And they they're small, well, relatively small, and they're excellent lenses. Yet you go to the other extreme, and and where people are after you know super high resolution, you've got like some of the the, the Zeiss lenses and some of the the latest uh, Sigma art lenses, and they're fifty millimeter lenses, say at one point four. Yet instead of saying having six element designs or something like that, they've the elements just seem to be going up and up and up and up, and I'm just wondering what's what's driving that that desire to to throw more elements in, in into a lens design. Well, it's uh, based at the core of it. Just fundamentally, it's being driven by the resolution of the imagers. So, uh, film film is great. I I love film and stuff, um, but the you, the resolution is is lower. The grain size mm-hmm. is uh, I don't want to say it's lower per se. It's it's different, I guess. Uh, film film achieves its high resolution. And I'm thinking you know medium format, large format, by having very large um, imaging arrays where the lenses are are so well collect corrected that um, you can achieve that sharpness. In other words, you. Uh, the, the blur, I guess, the spot, you know, I've got these spot diagrams. The spots sort of match the size of the film grains. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, think it back to, to, the, uh, to the digital revolution, you know, when, when imagers first started coming out, which, which I was, that's sort of the time frame that I got into the lens design a little bit before that. So I saw all that from the professional uh, perspective. Uh, the, the, uh, pixel sizes at the time sort of matched that of film. And so it was easy to adopt the, the lenses of the time to, to work with digital cameras. But as, as, uh, over the past couple of decades, you know, it's digital imagers follow the, the same trend as everything else where it gets smaller and, and better and, uh, Mostly, it's a it's a fight with noise, 
noise versus the smaller pixel pitch. Um, but uh, so so it's really fundamentally the resolution, the 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 cycles per millimeter that you have to resolve that, which drives that. And and there's other things. The the other thing too is that uh, the uh, the consumer world uh, was sort of driven by the need to accommodate the the um, the back focus required of an SLR. Mm. You know, you had to take into account that space, and you can see on the sonar, you know, this this huge back focus. Now, with with uh, mirrorless cameras coming along, um, you're going to see a shift away from that. What's what's essentially a design compromise towards higher performer performing lenses. Um, but but really, it's it's the resolution that drives the complexity, and and I guess I'll I'll say uh, coming from a, a an industry where we're doing really high resolution stuff. It's kind of cool to see the consumer market sort of catching up to other industries. So um, outside of the photography world, you know, optics are already complex. Okay. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask um, a couple of questions about lenses that people on our Facebook group um, often have. And then, and then um, one that, some of us have, but it isn't quite as common, but it's interesting to me. So I think almost everyone on the Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook group at one time or another has had a Helios 44 lens of, of some variant. And um, and there's always discussions about which one is the best. And I've kind yes. of come to the opinion that they're all the same and it depends on whether you got a good one or not. But put yes. that, putting that aside, what people like about them is that um, – the bokeh swirls in the background. And as you move from a micro four thirds up to APS-C to full frame, you can mm -hmm. see more of it. So it's it's more in the peripheral areas. And then you have the, the Helios 40 that has a huge swirl. And um, so we like that. Um, and we, we expl we've explained it before as, you know, the, the lens isn't corrected properly. But like from an optical engineer's perspective, what's going on? So the, uh, when, when, um, I guess first of all, the the point you made about the you get more variation from lens to lens that's that's an important point. So because uh, it it speaks back to those tolerances that I was mentioning. So if you have uh, looser tolerances or or I would I would say more relaxed quality control, you'll see wider variations from lens to lens. But that aside. Um, when uh, a few years ago, when Lomography put out their Petzl lens and 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 swirly bokeh sort of became the in thing, I I I revisited that because I had look at looked at the Petzl lens long ago as part of um, some some course studies and and uh, just my familiar familiarity with using it for work. Um, that swirly bokeh is um, Basically, it comes down to uh, field curvature. So, field curvature is is the aberration that the that uh, describes how uh, when you image a uh, or how the how the lens focuses on a a uh, image plane surface that's not flat. But it's curved, and that's that's a physical property of the lens, and and I could really I could put you guys to sleep with the math behind all that, but I won't. 
Uh, but I'll just say that field curvature is actually probably the primary aberration that makes lens designs very complex. So if you could make curved uh, focal plane arrays, then your lenses would get a lot simpler and, and maintain high resolution. Hmm. Uh, but, but that's not the case. So you have to correct for it. And so what you find is, what I find as a designer is that you you work really hard to make sure that the the uh, plane of best focus or the surface of best focus, I guess you could say, uh, is um, you know as big as your your uh, target uh, focal plane array size, your image size. So you know a micro four thirds chip, for example, you want to make sure that's really flat so you can stay in focus from corner to corner. Outside of that, you find that the uh, the field cur curvature starts taking over and the plane of best focus starts curving either away, to, away from or towards the lens. Um, yeah. So would that explain um, something that Simon and I talk about periodically, and Johnny doesn't care about this, but um, with um, <laughs> lenses that we use for landscape photography, um, mm -hmm. we like lenses that have, you know, excellent edges and corners. And so right. the um, Nikon, um, the Nikkor AIS 24 2.8, it's, it's a beautiful lens, uh, edge to edge. But then um, yes. if you compare it to some of the less expensive ones, you'll see that the, it's, the image looks nice, but if you start looking at the, the edges of the thing, they're, they're distorted. Is it the same same thing? Well, uh, this distortion itself, which is a change in magnification based on field angle, is is a little different. But the field curvature, you know, I and and for your listeners, I pulled up a uh, a layout of of the the classic Petzval objective lens with the swirly bokeh. Um, the actual so so field curvature is basically just a. Uh, Aside from field curvature, also tied in with that is astigmatism, which is a kind of hard to explain, but but basically it's a change in the 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 focus distance for um, how do you describe it? If you imagine imaging a, a spoked wagon wheel, um, if you have a lot of tangential field curvature, then uh, I'm sure I'm going to get this backwards, but the spokes are, or the 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 wheel itself is way out of focus, but the spokes are sharp. If you get if you have a lot of sagittal field curvature, then the spokes are out of focus, but the wheel itself is sharp because it's a change in focus based on whether or not you're parallel or perpendicular to the uh, to the uh, you know a, a, a circle surrounding the optical axis. So swirly bokeh comes from having a, a, a large amount of uncorrected sagittal field curvature. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of the case. There's a lot of stigmatism you'll see in, in lenses that have swirliness to them. So some lenses, they try to do that on purpose, like the Petzval and others, the Helios, when they produced it, I presume they didn't try to make it, um, a lens that had problems with it, and that's just how they how they made it in Russia, right, <laughs> or the Soviet Union. Well, I think I think, uh, and I and I was looking on looking up the Helios because I knew that you wanted to ask about this. Um, what I saw was that it it doesn't 
correct astigmatism, absolutely. So there, there is a little bit of that inherent in the design. Um, as a designer, you just sort of push that as far out as you can so that I, um, it's not noticeable on the uh, in the in the format of the, the uh, that you're shooting with. Uh, for a Petzval, um, it's it they they it's sort of the same way, and you know one of the reasons that uh, portraits taken with Petzval lenses back in the back in the 19th century had the the oval around them is because they were sort of blocking off that swirly bokeh, the swirliness. But uh, obviously, if you go outside of the the field of view that it's that I would say it's corrected for. Uh, then yeah, it, it 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 basically blows up is what I I just <laughs> right. I mean, it's a good thing, right? Yeah, it, it's it's a neat neat feature. Yeah. So, um, just I, I'm looking at my. I've been taking notes while we've been talking here, and and so there are things that we say. Uh, that we talk about in, you know, layman's terms in these yes. conversations we have about different lenses. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about why these things are maybe true or not true. But I, one thing that I, that comes to mind for me that you've sort of touched on just now is when you explained that, um, essentially digital sensors keep improving, right? So that the imager, yes. which is the receiver of the information coming from the lens, it, it keeps going up and up and up and up. So essentially what we're talking yes. about as we get into, you know, these, and I, and I, I feel like we're entering this realm of, um, you know, full, let's call it full frame, 35 millimeter sized digital sensors, which are, I think we could say becoming sort of an industry norm or the industry certainly wants them to become the norm. Um, yes. That, that, that a sensor that size um, is rapidly increasing in performance. And it, and I think is going to, it seems increase much more in the coming years. And it, it sounds like we've hit this point where um, the current sensors are, are much better than the let's say the the lenses that were designed for DSLRs say you know 10 12 15 years ago so it, putting lenses of those type on a much higher performing sensor than they were ever sort of designed to perform on is certainly going to limit what they can do and that's why lens designs seem to be getting more complex is that the sensors are getting just so much better that if the lens designs don't keep up, they're they're the, the they're just not going to perform to the limits of the sensor. Is that more or less a, a truism? I, I I think so. More or less, uh, I I would say that um, designs for a consumer market are always driven by the demands of the consumer. Yeah, and so there's obviously a trend with uh, digital imagers to have ultra sharp. Uh, images that are perfect, you know, no, right. no aberrations. Of course, there's the, the crazy ones among us that, that like the old soft look and shoot film and stuff, but ignoring, ignoring us weirdos. Um, the, the trend is, is to have ultra sharp, high resolution imagery. That's what's driving the, um, not, I wouldn't say not the, uh, not the drive towards high resolution arrays because they they're out there and they exist yeah but driving the cost down 
of of mass produced focal plane arrays for the consumer market. Okay. And then the the other thing is is um, you know it's it's I wouldn't call them the lenses from my perspective. I wouldn't call the optics complex per se because I mean they're all when I look at them uh, they're all sort of related. You know, if a double gauss is a double gauss, regardless of how many elements you, how many times you split the front and rear elements, yeah, and yeah. add to those. I mean, they're all part of the same family, and you're just, you're just using the tools as a designer at your disposal to meet the requirements. But the other, the other thing that makes what what makes them complex from a designer perspective is is keeping the cost and the weight down. The cost, weight, and okay. size is always what drives complexity. You know, unless you have yeah. some whacked out specification that that the cus- customer stubbornly adheres to that, that really drives the, the design complexity. Aside from that, you know, cost is king and size and weight <laughs> is king. And so the challenge really is um, keeping the weight down. And that's where you see the use of the extra dispersive Glass and the uh, use of A spheres uh, coming into play is is mm. to keep that weight down. Um, yeah. So when we see so the so when we see a, a lens design, let's say we you know we look at a modern lens and you know there's 28 elements in there. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's not necessarily a sign of uh, a complexity or b quality necessarily. It's it's a matter of it's probably easier to put another piece of glass in to make a certain correction than to use fewer, <laughs> more complex piece. Does that, is that, I mean, am I onto that or am I wrong? Um, well, so, um, the, let's, let's take a spheres for example. I mean, it's, uh, as, as a, an example of a tool along with like ED glass and stuff like that. So an yeah. a sphere, um, what an a sphere does for me as a designer is, allows me to save save room by um, either taking two spherical lenses and combining them into a, a spherical surface and a and a aspheric surface mm-hmm. so so combining two lenses into one an asphere allows me to do that um, but that that side that is that said I mean you, no matter how Within the limits, I guess, uh, as the FPAs get higher and higher resolution, you can always come up with a, an all-spherical, easy-to-make lens that will give you the resolution you need because it's yeah. it's the design forms that really drive the performance, not the not the specifics. So if you pick a double Gauss design type, you can always split lenses and add add doublets and add singlets. And keep it all spherical, and and get your resolution performance. But it's going to be, it's going to be bulky and 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 uh, a good way to yeah. build up your biceps, I guess, when you're shooting, you know, from the hip. But yeah. so, so the aspherics <laughs> and the ED glasses, they're all. The, those are tools that help drive down the weight. Really, I think is what drives right. it. Okay. Okay. Because so, yeah. you, you know it. Yeah, it's just interesting that the, it, these are terms. I feel like consumers know these terms and manufacturers use these terms to sort of indicate 
you know that it that, that it's either a super high quality lens or something to that effect. So we talk about oh, it's a spherical ED SF blah blah blah. Right. So it's funny how those those terms of design sort of come down into the into marketing. <laughs> And and yeah. what you're saying, I think, is that it's more, it has more to do with maybe size and weight than necessarily quality per se. Well, that yeah, I, really, I mean, really, yeah, that's what what it comes down to. Nobody okay. wants to carry around a ten pound lens. Yeah. So, but Carlos, yes, though. I mean, Carlos, that's, Carlos, that's, tell us about a ten pound lens. Yeah, ten pound lens. I mean, there, there's a joke in the engineering world that that. Uh, that uh, management doesn't like engineers talking to the customer. So, so marketing sort of, I'll, I'll politically correctly say that marketing likes to translate what the engineers say into speak that, uh, that yeah. rings true. With I was, was going to say on, on the subject of marketing then, uh, because this is something that we've, we've given Zeiss in particular a bit of a hard time over, over the, uh, the podcasts uh, that, that we've done. Um, mm. And it was interesting. I, I, I can now visualize how, um, like the the latest super high resolution uh, Zeiss lenses are still a planar, even though they're not uh, a six element design, uh, because right. your your view is that they're just a a modification of that design. Um, yep. I'm just wondering how that sits with something like a Sonar, which in my mind is a five element design, and uh, the latest Sonars are, are far more than that, and and they're of an uh, an asymmetrical. Uh, design. So I'm just just wondering how you how they expand out, or is it, or is that, are, are they? I guess what I'm saying is, is that are they still truly sonars, or is it are they just using the name and they're just doing it some kind of uh, asymmetrical design and therefore calling it a sonar? Well, I and I'll have to admit I'm not as familiar with the sonar uh, as I am with the planars, but uh, I I think in general. They can still hold true to the name. Um, had, I was actually, I knew you were going to ask this too. And so I was actually looking at some uh, some sonar layouts. And for the listeners, I just brought up a, a big data sheet that has a bunch of them. Uh, I mean, lights can call them what they want. If they want to call it a sonar, that that's great. I mean, what the what does it do in the end? <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. But yeah, so the sonar is is a is a really cool high resolution. Here, I'm gonna look. I wanted to look um, asymmetrical design. That uh, they're gonna. You guys are gonna laugh at me. I pulled up the Wikipedia site. Let me pull this up. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, we, we know more than, more than Jason does. That's it. We'll end the podcast right just now. Just like an amateur like us now. <laughs> well, uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a lens that I'm fam as familiar with from my photography right. side hobby. So let me say that. But, I mean, it, it, it's a great lens, and it's, it's proven robust. And if they can keep I, – I mean – the, the lights lens designers, I'm sure they, they have their database of sonars and they use that as, as springboards for, for meeting new requirements. I'll say, I'll put it that way. And, yeah. and so they probably call, call it a, a, well, they probably say it's a, a 40 mil, 40 degree F2. Uh, but I mean, they can call it a sonar and if it's, and if somebody like, uh, if another designer can, can see, where the form came from 
then he'll say, okay, well, that's that's fine. You can, but in the end, I mean, they can call it what they want. I, I just but they're say, definitely I... different than the, than the planar, which... I'm sorry. Just just for the, the the benefit of our listeners, um, some of them are, are, are shouting at the moment. Uh, when when we talk about sonar designs, we're talking about Zeiss uh, rather than uh, lights. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Lights. And I, I wanted to ask you something. So um, we're sitting sorry, here, and you. and like you said, we we're looking at pictures of lens formulas, which people can't see. But um, as an optical engineer, when you look at this picture that we have here, which is the basic sonar design, can you tell? That would be a, a lens that's going to be getting soft towards the edges. Yeah, so so uh, I can talk a little bit about what I look at uh, when I'm doing a lens design. I'll look at the, um, first of all, and this is going to sound quirky, but one of the things that I really look at is is the layout of the optics. And, and this is a very intangible thing, but I ask myself, does the layout look like a nice lens layout and by that <laughs> and what nice and my definition of nice is is um you know are the uh is the thickness to the diameter ratio um sort of in a in a in a, in a good ballpark to be made without having problems like um you know i don't want the edges to be too thin i don't i don't want the lens to be incredibly thick because that just adds weight unnecessarily yeah, you know, so so if it if the layout looks like something that I can go, okay, well, this this should be easy to fabricate, then I can go on with it. But if it if the lenses look, I'm going to use a technical term here. If the lenses look really wonky, then <laughs> chances are that the that the design won't hold up well when I start looking at the tolerances. The other thing I look at is the spot diagram. So how and the spot diagram is simply um, a an indicator of how the the lens images a, a single point source like a star. You know, how, what's that star going to look like uh, in the image? Is it going to be diffraction limited? Look like an airy disk? Is it going to is going to uh, look like it has a lot of coma and stuff? I get a lot personally from that. Um, I'm also tracking MTF if if I have an MTF requirement, but it's mostly the layout. And that it's mostly the layout and the um, the spot diagram that I'm yeah. that I'm looking at. So can I can I just can I just for fun can I throw a um, a lens design at you and you could just kind of pull it up and give us your instant feedback? That's cool. I want to do one too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just purely you know I'm basing this on what you just said about you know basically does it look nice meaning the way yeah. the elements are yeah. so laid out a, stuff yeah and, it, and that's a really intangible thing yeah that, no no but but th but this is <laughs> and but that's why i i particularly want your gut reaction to a specific lens and the guys yeah. might already know where i'm going here because okay. all right so there's a lens uh the it's the uh prima plan um it's the what is that a 58 millimeter guys 58 millimeter 1.9 yeah prima plan yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's a lens you're able to look at in terms of just, you know, just purely based on optical design. If it's, let, let me, uh, okay. Let me, let me dredge this up from memory. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The 58 1.9 problem plan. Yeah. Um, so hopefully there's a, is this, there a, it is. that's yep. it. Yeah. That right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I mean that that looks that looks fine. I mean it's a little it's not symmetrical. Yeah. Um I don't know. This this lens back here sort of bothers me. It's it doesn't seem like it's uh it's wide enough to catch so, to do anything but vignette the rays off axis. So to me, I I have always thought that this was a lens that they had a bunch of leftover glass elements. <laughs> And or the, together. Yeah, and or the yeah. designers were like on shrooms and they just kind of like threw it all together. <laughs> and and you can, you know, I think you'll see that there's uh, photos that are coming up in association yeah. with this lens you just pull up. And they have a very, shall we say, particular look to them. Um, and some people love it and, and some people hate it. Um, but it's definitely particular. <laughs> what do you think, Johnny? Do you like it? I mean, it... Particular is an interesting word. I think it's hilarious. I mean, I just, just <laughs> yep. I just think it's a hilarious lens. I mean, it, I think it looks really, really weird on digital. Really weird because I, I think, we'll, and and you know, it's like we, we talk crap about this stuff, and now you know, talking with Jason here, it's like you start to learn. Oh, okay, so maybe there really is a reason it looks so weird. And I think it was never obviously designed to, to. Uh, resolve on a super high resolution uh, imager, right? Which is what the di which did what digital is. So I feel like it's something that may have worked on film, but just completely goes into wacko land on digital. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, these these outer lenses are they're kind of sem symmetrical a little yeah. bit, but this this these interior lenses are <laughs> they're they're definitely not and. Although they are kind of, I mean, you have, it's like he started, the designer started correcting this one up front and then I was like, oh, yeah, it's like, they, it's like, they, it's like, they just started up because they're, yeah, it's like it started with a Tessar in the middle and then they just threw some other stuff at the front and back to be like, well, let's try that. <laughs> so yeah, let me, can, this, can I, this sort of, this sort of lens bothers me. I bet they have <laughs> a lot of problem fabricating that just because yeah. the, uh, the thickness in the center. When yeah, you, when you block that up on the pitch lap, uh -huh. uh, if it's too thin, then you'll you'll actually start the glass will start warping and you'll it'll throw wow. off your um, it'll throw off your radius of curvature. You get you'll get a, a a deviation from the the ideal curvature that you want. Okay. The other thing is just looking at the uh, <laughs> looking at the images. You've got a lot of spherical aberration, so it doesn't correct. It's it's got that issue going on. It looks like just just the way the bokeh looks, and then right um, way off axis. It's got it's got um, <laughs> some astigmatism that, yeah. that is causing the swirliness. Yeah, I, this is definitely not made for a high resolution. So this, but, is I mean, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have um, the design form itself doesn't have a lot of um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that it you couldn't do a lot with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be, it may boil down to the, the fact that, you know, the guy was under a, a deadline to get something cranked out and he's like, oh, that's good enough. Yeah. Or it's, it's hard to, <laughs> hard to hit the tolerances needed. I mean, it's a fast flipping lens, 1.9. Yeah. So I would expect that, uh, you would require, uh, fairly tight tolerances, um, which maybe the factory couldn't hit. I don't know. Yeah. So this, that's so, um, you know, this to be serious about this. <laughs> this is a lens that a lot of people really like, and um, I, I like the look of it too. I, I mean, I think that the photos are really cool, and um, 
I aspire to take photos like that sometimes. Um, but I want to ask you about another lens then that's probably at the opposite end of the spectrum. And it's one of the ones that I asked you about in the post and yeah. our little chat group. And Johnny and I both really like this lens. And it's the um, it's a Heliar design. Okay. Yes. A very different design. And so uh, I don't know how many Johnny has. Uh, we both um, have the 15 millimeter. Um, right. 15 for... 4.5 and it's it's maybe the best wide lens that i have on, a, on an APS-C sensor it's just um, unbelievably yeah. sharp yeah. the colors the con uh, there's nothing about it that's not perfect and and then i also have and simon has this too um a 58 millimeter f 2.4 As asahai kogaku it's an old Japanese one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, give a shit about it. Good to have you back for all this okay. week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's where Pepsi then, comes from. <laughs> and then I don't know how many of us have it, but I, I have a, um, a Voigtlander 75 2.5 color Heliar that I've hardly had a chance to use yet. But um, so when you look at the design of that lens, what things do come to mind, you know, looking at it the same way you just did with the Primo plan? So, so the the main difference is that the Heliar is is symmetrical, and the design form, how I see it, is it's a cooked triplet where the the two outer positive elements have been achromatized, um, and and in the original cook, the cook is a great classic lens, and it's it's one of the basic lens designs that's studied. If you if you go to college to get a lens design degree, which I didn't do, but I took classes afterwards. Um, it's one of those design forms that you have to study along with the the, the single, uh, you know, the classic wool and sack landscape lens, which is the single mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. lens with the aperture. But the Cook is a, the Cook triplet was um, sort of one of the, the cornerstones of modern lens forms and it's it it basically was the first of of the triplet design family, which includes Cook, Tessars, the Heliar, and, and stuff like that. And and what the what they share, uh, not that they're they're all three lenses, but they all correct the aberrations in the same way. And uh, a, a big part of that is is the symmetry around the stop, uh, which you you know I have I have the layout for the original Heliar up for the guys to see um, the stop right there. It's, it's symmetrical around that. And when you have design symmetry around the stop, you just as a freebie correct things like, uh, correct what we call the, the odd aberrations. So uh, distortion, coma, and uh, lateral color. And so that, that's sort of a bonus. And then what you do actually from a design standpoint uh, what he probably did was he started with for the group and stigmatism, you know, and, and correct his spherical aberration and then mirrored it around the aperture. And then he gets distortion and come on lateral color corrected for free. And so, I mean, it's, it's a very elegant way to correct all your optics in the cook had just enough, uh, what we call design variables, you know, raised curvature, lens position, glass type, and thickness to correct all of the main aberrations, which is a spherical aberration, coma, astigmatism, distortion, field curvature, and all that. So um, 
and the heliar just sort of takes that a step further by correcting uh getting some color correction in there as well yeah. i think uh if i remember reading it right it doesn't there is a little bit of uncorrected field curvature out at the edge here oh yeah and uh um but it's it's not this would be for me this would be a good starting point design i'd probably start with a cook or a a, a split rear triplet uh, aka a tessar but the heliar is definitely i mean obviously they're still making variants of it to this day yeah um, there's you know if, if there wasn't something to that if there wasn't a robustness to the design form then they wouldn't be wouldn't still be doing it, of it today <laughs> yeah and right. it's interesting exactly. that the 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 lens we're talking so highly of the 15 millimeter hilliard i mean the aperture the maximum aperture on that lens is 4.5 so they it's yeah. like they it, right so it's like it, it, it if you don't push that maximum aperture i think what we're saying is that field curvature that we're probably seeing at the end there of that scale you're not seeing that as much in the actual output right. of the lens right Yes, I and and like I was saying before, the, the for field curvature, the objective is to correct, you know, just enough for your format that you're working mm -hmm. with, and so obviously right. uh, for this particular example, which I think is the the uh, the patent prescription, you know, obviously you would use that for a, a forty degree field of view. So this yeah. is zero to twenty is shown here. So that's half of the field of view. Yeah. So uh, let me ask. Let me ask you a question about the Heliar. Um, so Johnny just said the the four point five uh, maximum aperture. Mm -hmm. um, now I have a seventy five, and it has it's a two point five. And so, um, and this is a stupid question, and there may even people that are listening that think this is a stupid question, but I don't know the answer. Why is it possible to go to two point five and achieve a really great result with a Heliar design on a seventy five millimeter, but not on a fifteen? Uh, well, I, I don't know how old the, the, the 15 millimeter design oh, is. The age there. could be different. I, I think there are, no, I think there's similar age. So yeah, the, the 15, just the 15 millimeter Heliard came out, was basically released with the, um, the, uh, uh the Bessa L. I mean, they they were kind of released at the same time and this was late nineties. Yep. Yeah. yeah so they're the both, 15, they're both yeah, these are both screw mount. I think they're probably similar age. And, yeah. and so the 15 is is sort of a really wide field of view, right? I got that right. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so anything that deviates from causes you to deviate from what 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 we all know as as sort of a normal field of view ends up being a design compromise. Mm. So you can't. There's there's no. Uh, green button that you can push that that cranks out a, a 15 millimeter you know f2 there's there's always you know even for a robust design like this which i would consider robust enough to make a 15 millimeter that's great um but obviously you have to give something up you don't get anything for free um even lunches but uh so so uh the the easiest thing to to compromise on if if it's not a an absolute re, a design requirement is, is the f number so uh, most of the aberrations and and like I said I could bore you with the math but they're all dependent 
they all have some sort of dependency um, on on the speed of the lens. I mean, obviously, you open up a, a lens, the the aberrations, you know, the the image gets softer. I'll try to yeah. use layman's term. The image gets softer. Uh, you stop it down, it it's sharp. And you can right tell up. by looking at, looking at this um, diet. Can you tell by looking at this why it is that this lens is beautiful on an APS-C or Micro Four Thirds sensor? But when I put it on my Sony full frame, it's horrible because the edges are all purple and distorted. Yeah, so uh, I mean, once you start pushing the 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 overall feel of view that the lens is designed for, I mean, there is a there is a limit to the to the triplet type, and it's 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 when it gets really wide field of view, which is why the fifteen is is stopped down. And then also, I mean, inherently. Um, the the triplet type traditionally wasn't the fastest design type that that goes to the double gauss. But yeah. um, you know, through throughout the twentieth century, as new glass types came out, I mean, that just opened up the flexibility that you had as a designer to to push the speed. So, like, uh, well, take take the take the Heliar. So early in the twentieth century, it was it was an f4ish lens which is which is fast for the day that was that was great um but there were limits limits on how fast you could push that and maintain a, a sharp image in the 1950s when the lanthanides came out i mean that that uh that was that was awesome from a designer perspective because it 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 added a, another powerful tool to my toolbox of of pushing the limits of the lenses and and then um can you explain what that is for for people that are listening the lanthanides so yeah, that's uh yeah. that's a that let me let me step back a little bit and talk about glass types so traditionally in the in the 19th century you had basically two different types of glass you had a you had your traditional flint and crowns the crowns were a a relatively low index high dispersion lens the index was usually around 1.5, and the and the dispersion was higher. And then the flints, which was a higher index, uh, and either lower or higher dispersion. You put those two together, and you can make an a chromat, which uh, excuse me, which corrects color. Um, when uh, when shot, no, was it uh, lights? stood up their glassworks in in Gina, Germany, in Germany, and started cranking out new glass types. That's when you saw things like the Cook triplet, the double gauss. You know, Paul Ru Rudolph cranked out a bunch of designs that, that sort of formed the foundation for modern design types. And it was it was all due to the fact that you had new glass types with properties that were good for the designer. And the lanthanides of the 50s was an example of that. I mean, that's that was sort of like a secret sauce at the time, right? That, and why their their lenses were so nice because they started using those. And then, uh, you know, in the 60s, in the 70s, I think, in 80s, you saw even newer glass types. The EDs that you see, you know, in the marketing term means the dispersion is extra low. So you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to use a doublet to correct color. You, the the glass is already 
uh, well corrected inherently for color uh, rel relatively. Um, so yeah, just as time time goes on, uh, the tools available to the designer evolve uh, and increase, and it allows these uh, these old designs uh, more flexibility. So so yeah, the hell here, you can push it faster because um, you can use use newer lower dispersion glasses that, to control. Um, I just, just, aberrations. I just, just want to just take things just back a little bit. I, I, we haven't, we aren't quite done with Helios yet, but it's just to answer uh, Cole's question um, about why. Um, I'm, yeah. trying, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to save all the emails that are going to be hitting. Right. The, uh, hitting <laughs> yeah, and, sorry. And, sometimes I go off no, on a tangent. No, 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 no. This, this is this is uh, more about. Carl asked you a question that sent you in a direction, whereas the, the actual the reason for the problem was is nothing to do with the lens. Yeah, it's to do with this the is this is uh, yeah. Carl messed this one up. We're yeah. just calling him out. Um, yeah. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> a 15 millimeter. What, what are you? What are you? Yeah, we, we get, <laughs> Carl, we're about to help you. Right. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, great. Right. great. So you, your yeah. your original Mark One LTM screw, fifty millimeter Helior, yes, which you say works great on your Fuji, works great on your Micro Four Thirds, and it gives you uh, uh, blurred and purple edges on Sony full frame. Why? Why is right. that? And then you were asking that as an optical question. Well, it's this is a sensor question because it's about what part of the image circle you're actually seeing on your sensor, and you're seeing with the Micro Four Thirds, you're seeing. The, the the bit in the middle if you like and then you've seen a little bit more with your fuji but with the with the sony you're seeing all of it and these aberrations which um in the, with these helios and these lenses which they, they're trying to deal with are shown more at the edge than they are in the center because they're correct right and, and here's where i get to say you're both so wrong that's, so that's an optical no. so that's an optical answer <laughs> no, thank you not. thank you simon it's a no, it's with an optical explanation <laughs> Um, I, the I pro the problem with way, your John, go on. <laughs> yeah 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 the problem with Carl's purple uh, purple stuff on his Sony is not the lens it's the sensor that's the correct answer and bullshit no it is no, it, it is it, it is it is and this is it, this is all to do with angles it, isn't it Johnny just before you said I've got both. it wrong it's not, it's not just one thing it's both now, you know what we'll, we'll we'll hand this over to the expert to say you're wrong Carl. <laughs> Can I put it in a way that, um, just so that Johnny understands, uh, sorry, that, that Jason understands the argument that we're having here, right. and, then he can, and then he can pronounce judgment upon it. Um, because what, what, what we're saying, especially with a lens such as uh, this, this wide-angle lens that sits close, relatively close, well, he does know, it sits close to the sensor, and therefore it's sending the rays of light uh, towards the edges of the full frame sensor it's a it's an oblique or it's a it's a it's a shallow angle instead of actually having them uh, those those rays of light hitting as close to perpendicular as possible because the sensor yeah, it's itself... a good optical answer no, a good optical it... answer <laughs> i don't my answer will depend on who can pay me the most <laughs> <laughs> oh so your whole your whole explanation simon was about the optics of what the lens is yeah i just well, this was about the sensor <laughs> Can I just say that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good uh, customer of J-Lane dry plates. I just want to mention that. <laughs> okay. No, but I, you know what? I wonder what they so, did in the newer Heliar to correct for that. Um, well, here I can I can kind of talk talk to it because it's I, I think the answer is is uh, is is actually a mix, and part of it is is as you go off axis, your your color correction, all your aberrations and stuff, including color correction, is going to start start blowing up. I mean, yeah, obviously, if yeah. you put that lens in front of a four by five format, 
you know, large format camera, it's, it's, it's going to go to crap long before yeah, you get to yeah, the corners yeah. of the film. Right. So there's, yeah. there's that. And that's, that's not really, I wouldn't call that a knock against the lens per se. It's just the, the nature of, of, uh, of the design life. Um, the, uh, the other thing, the obliquity is, a uh, the, the ray angles that it hits the FPA is an interesting one. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, focal plane array manufacturers started putting lenslets on the front on, on, on their FPAs to not only collect more light and become more efficient, but also help, help to address that because as the, uh, as the rays hit the uh, the cover glass, actually, you know, the cover plate that's in front of it, that that protects the the actual detectors, um, you get a, you'll get a little bit of a, a a change in the angles for different colors. You know, just like a, uh, putting white light through a prism. Um, but the but the distance from the imaging arrays isn't isn't a lot, so I I don't think that's a, a large effect. The other thing might be that the the different sensors have, uh, uh, and I don't know how true this is, but it's just I'm sort sort of spitballing from my perspective things that I have to worry about. The other thing might be that the uh, the sensor, the filter on the front of the sensors are slightly different, so they they pass colors. They might pass uh, what one sensor might pass a broader spectrum uh, than the others slightly. Uh, that the lens may not be as corrected, well corrected for. So, like in the blue channel, um, one sensor might pass a little bit more deep blue, or or a little bit of UV that the lens might not be corrected as much for. So you'll get you'll get a, a greater dispersion in there on one. Did, Jason, the other thing. I think that Simon, gets... Simon, Simon, and I are both. I think Simon and I are both. Simon is not the only person who's correct. With answers, I think I think um, I think that we both I think that we're I I agree with Simon, but you, you have to agree that the lens is designed in a way that it's putting out um, light and, and an oblique angle when it hits that Sony sensor. Okay, so that's an optical thing, and but but the sensor has a particular way of capturing light that it's 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 a problem and yeah, and, but... Nik and Nik Nikon has overcome that with the Z7 if you put the same okay. lens on a Z7 so it's I think it's both all right so, so Jason I just, guess if, I guess you one way to test that <laughs> I'm trying to think of a thing Simon, to Simon has to always be right time. you know he can't both be right I mean you could test for that by by putting a a, a filter that blocks off the the deep blue and and see if that changes Ah, so, yeah. mm -hmm. um, Jason, the other thing that come that is mentioned often in terms of what we're what we're spewing about right now is that <laughs> the that some of the full frame sensors and the same problem with this lens exists on Leica cameras. If you put this yeah. on a, the, this lens on a Leica M, you know, eight, nine, ten, you know, eight, nine, ten, whatever. Um, the uh, the problem is that the the sensor itself. It, what gets explained often is the pixel wells. So in other words, the pixel sits on the sensor in in such a way that the light coming in on the oblique angle is actually shading the pixel, right? So it, it and that's why I say it's a, in terms of a sensor, particular sensors because of how they are arranged or arrayed, um, that the light actually coming in at those oblique angles is, is literally shading the pixel as you get to the, you know, the outer edges. Uh, yeah, so 
I wouldn't put much into that just because uh, <laughs> you don't have a single, you know, the rays aren't, aren't discrete, right? So yeah, next to one, one ray, there's, there's another that's right next. There's nothing really to shade it because as soon yeah. as it hits the surface of the detector material, it's not like, uh, <laughs> you know, sensor designers talk in, in buckets and wells. It's not a physical right. well. It's not like a, a yeah. detector at the bottom of a hole. Right, right, right. Uh, and that's why I wanted to put that out there is that often gets thrown around as a part of the why this happens because, you know, Carl's right. The later versions of this lens, they've redesigned this lens and it's now on version three of, of this lens designed by Casina. And it doesn't have this issue anymore on this on the same sensors. So they've they've designed around the problem. It sounds like um, because it's still the same aperture, but they no longer have the shading issue. Yeah, yeah. I, well, is is it like a light fall off thing? Like uh, what they what could be happening is in the early earlier designs. Um, one of the designs tools is to uh, induce some vignetting. Yeah, to to reduce the aberrations off axis, and and in uh, the new iteration, they might have switched mm -hmm. to a different glass type, which didn't require that, and so you'll sure. get more light off axis. But you that makes sense, and then the, yeah. so the whole thing is optical. That's well, it's, and all, it, it's all it's all optical. It's not, but it's yeah, also I mean, the it, it's the receiver though. It was the original version. Of this lens was designed for film. It wasn't designed for a digital sensor. So it was designed for a, a different. Here we go with the film stuff. No, it's true though. I don't know. Well, the, the 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 lens doesn't know what's behind it, so yeah, you know, it's a linear system. So, as far as treat, I, this, this is going to sound weird, but as far as the lens treating a sensor differently because it's film or digital, I mean that that's that would break the laws of physics. And, <laughs> could could you but, could you could you answer something that I asked a little while ago that we that, that's not in, in this issue that we're going around on but it's about the heliar design and then we have to get mm -hmm. off of that probably and onto a different kind of lens but um so i have <laughs> you can I tell have, thinks he's one <laughs> I, well, I know i know it's, it's obvious even simon's simon's entire answer was about optics but okay um no this <laughs> say, it wasn't yeah yes it was sure it was the whole you know thing I, you know i, I will listen say to that the, listen that to the, the optics I, I will say that in an imaging system the optics aren't living in a vacu vacuum like yeah. the, the lens the sensor even the atmosphere out in front of it that all combines to to um you know to uh to generate a, a final result so it, right. it all yeah. matters there i i agree i just give simon a hard time and so um but what i was wondering is i so i have these two voigtlander lenses i think they probably were made in the early 90s one's 75 and the other's 15 yeah um if we if I opened them up and, and looked at what's inside, is it going to be the same glass elements and they're just a, a different distance apart from each other? Uh, well, and I know that might be a dumb question, but I, I don't know. Well, there, there's no such thing as a dumb question unless you're an engineer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, but you're not, so it's it's not a bad question. <laughs> so, I mean, the to to so when you talk about taking a design and scaling it for a different focal length, they can scale directly, and then you sort of tweak it for for the uh, the size of the uh, imager that you're working with. 
Um, so if you took it apart and looked at it, would it look exact like a like a mini me version of the larger one? I don't think so because yeah, uh, you have to take into consideration the size of your your uh, your uh, your image circle, I guess you could say. So um, right. scaling for for uh, to to a different sensor size. That's that's one thing. Um, scaling within the the same sensor size that that will that will change it more dramatically than scaling down the sensor and the lens with it. So it it would look like if you slice them both in half, you go okay. Well, they kind of look the same. You'll have the the doublets on the 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 two positives on the outside, and you'll have a a, a negative lens on the inside next to the stop. But but uh, as far as the uh, the the curvatures and and uh, and the separation distance they might be different but from a design standpoint I would consider them the same. All right. So well, what else can we, what a, else can we argue a, with Carl about? No, that, no, that, no. It's what, interesting. So I was just um, <laughs> I just put that seventy five on my Sony for the first time because I'd been shooting on the Fuji, and um, I just took a shot in the room here and I'm looking at it on my camera and, it, and it's it looks good on the edges. So it does not have, even though it's made in the same era, and yeah, I guess because it's yeah, a longer lens. It just has it's just a, longer, a longer lens, right? Yeah, it's a longer it. lens. Yeah, because right? it's, so it's, it hasn't it hasn't got to bend the light around in in, in the same okay. the same kind of way. So it's coming in at a straighter angle from the start. So it, that's so it's that's good, really. Yeah. I mean, when they redesigned that that fifty millimeter for for Sony, it's a much larger yeah. lens. It's not just like a little tweak. It's it's considerably yeah. different, isn't it? So I yes. assume that rear element has also been pushed further away from the sensor, I would guess, as well. Yeah, I mean, you can you can start running into issues with uh, um, changing. If you have, have a requirement to change the back focus, mm -hmm. for example, the Heliar uh, for a, uh, you know, if you scale the lens to a different focal length, but then also your back focus has to change because you have to work around like the the mirror in an SLR, or or if you need to push it real close to the sensor, I mean that that's going to cause problems. So the Heliar is really nice for a is a nice design, for example, for uh, having a layout where you have a long back focal length, so the lens mm -hmm. doesn't have to be right up next to the imaging array. Okay. But if you were trying to push that closer because you wanted a nice tight compact uh, package, um, then you're going to run into problems because, as you said, the 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 uh, the field angles will change. So imagine, uh, I mean, if you if you have a lens with a imaging array, and and the edge of your uh, you know the ray that that goes from the lens to the the corner of the uh, sheet of film, I guess you could say, if that's only ten degrees, that's a that's a different problem to solve than if it's if it's if you push that lens closer and now it's it's got to uh, go through an angle of like fifty degrees to meet the yeah. corner of the film. That's yeah. that's a totally different design. Yeah, I, I pulled up a, um, a, a lens design diagram of the version three, fifteen f one f four point five super wide Hilliar. And it has 13 elements. Yeah. Be, it, and 14, 14 elements. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's, it is, it probably has to, it's a really wide field of view. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. And it's close to the imaging sensor. So that's like 
the worst of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, you just have to, even with A spheres and EDs, um, you just have, they probably, the designer probably had to pull out all the stops. Well, now that, uh, Jason, you've made, uh, Carl feel really good and really happy. And he will now for the next like six months be saying, but we'll see, remember when Jason was on and he said that I was right. So thank you for making Carl feel good. Cause we're glad to have him back. And this will give him a reason to maybe keep coming back again on a regular basis. So thank you for that. Um, what I, what I want to ask Jason after all, all that silliness, uh, is what, what, so what's your, do you have a favorite lens and tell us about it? So I guess, uh, first of all, well, I do. And, um, it's basically anything that's cheap that, that I shoot <laughs> large format with. No, uh, so I like shooting large format photography. So I'm 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 all into the the older lenses. Um, I really like the 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 classic Anastigmat design. So the uh, the um, the uh, the symmetrical uh, acromats. Uh, you know, it's not fast, um, and it's and it's a data design, but it's it's got a nice characteristic to the images that I really like, and I. And I actually appreciate how it design how it corrects aberrations. So there's that geekiness in there, but but it works really well. And and it's also um, it's also it doesn't have a lot of air glass interfaces. And at that time, that was important for keeping the contrast up uh, yeah. because they didn't have coatings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I haven't found a, a anastigmat that I that I that I don't like. <laughs> That so really interesting from my perspective because I'm if it stops snowing today and tomorrow is not snowy, I'm about to take my um, my Kodak 3A out for the first time, which I've converted oh, yes. to take yeah, so I've converted it to take 120 film, and on that camera is the classic uh, Kodak Anastigmat, and I believe is that the same lens? I believe yes, or yeah, that's, a variation. They're, they're of it? All yeah, they're all similar. Yep, and yeah, the nice okay. thing about the yeah. anast the anastigmat is that um, uh, Paul Rudolph took that. I think that was his design. He took that and he made the double gauss from it. Um, the other sort of quirky, quirky, uh, obscure lens that I really like is the Zeiss Icon Novar anastigmat, which they put on their really? format. Yep, it's a it's a it's a it's a sleeper. So th this is interesting also for, for me because one of the things I've uh, in the last year that I got really excited about is that Mike Ekman, um, the famous Mike Ekman, he took my Voigtlander um, Bessa 1, which had yeah. a Novar lens on it, and he yes. upgraded it for me to the Scopar lens, which mm -hmm. I had the lens which had come off basically the same or similar camera at one point and he he swapped the novar for the uh uh the other lens which i thought would be a cool thing to do because it was in theory the higher quality lens but those novars are really nice aren't they because i have shots yeah. as well yeah yeah i mean they're they're not fast if you're looking for speed then then look elsewhere but but they're just there's something about them i have a yeah i have a zeiss netar um, with the Novar lens on it, it's a six by six format. It it just mm -hmm. takes great pictures for being what it is. The other 
The other one that I really like, um, and this is sort of no surprise, is the Kodak Ektar design family. Oh, yeah. Uh, which started, started with the Aero Ektars. And just to tie that into what we were talking about earlier, I mean, that's that's sort of, from my perspective, the pinnacle of uh, the Heliar family because it is derived from a from the Heliar design. Huh. The, the guy who designed the, the Ektars started off by designing a bunch of different types of Heliars. And so that, that's where oh, that came interesting. from. Huh. Interesting. And I imagine without going too far and again into your day job, um, those Aero Ektars were, and tell me if I'm wrong, but we're talking about the lens that originally was designed as an aerial reconnaissance lens, right? I mean, the, yes. Yep. Yeah. So during during World War II, they they uh, Kodak used the designed the Aero Ektar and and it was uh, it, it was a very important lens for aerial reconnaissance. Um, the thing about that the Aero Ektar forms, I mean, they used um, the uh, the radioactive lenses. So oh yeah, that, right. Very good. So, okay. Well, I think what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna um, we're gonna run through some emails real quick, and then we are gonna kind of swing back around, and we're gonna talk about uh, dry plates. So, um, so yeah, let's let's hit some email, and then and then we'll come back around. So, I'm gonna read an email from Chris Holland, um, and here we go. Chris says, "Hello, Johnny, Carl, and Simon. I have a Pentacon Six TL six by six medium format camera." With a Carl Zeiss Jena sonar 300 millimeter f4 lens, and there's a link there. And it says, according to the following table, the sonar 300 millimeter equals on medium format camera in angle of view to 165 millimeter full frame lens on a full frame camera, according to the following table. Blah, blah. Um, now, adapting this lens to a Sony Alpha A72 with a simple Pentacon 6 mount to next adapter, no glass inside. Uh, motivation, adapting my medium format Carl Zeiss Jena lenses seems to be a very inexpensive way to get high quality lenses for full frame cameras. Surprisingly, the medium format Sonar 300 millimeter shows same angle of view on the Sony A7 III as a Canon FD 300 millimeter full frame lens. <laughs> and then he says, question, why does the crop factor of 0.55 according to the table not apply? Kindest, Raynox greetings and Kofi donation Coffee donation with Kofi, Chris Holland. Now, I think <laughs> um, that all said, I'm now going to read part two of that email where apparently he answers his own question. So he says, um, next, addition to my previous email, I'm not sure, but the right answer could be the focal length of a lens is always unchanged no matter which sensor or film size you're using. Because of this, the sonar 300 millimeter medium format lens will also be a 300 millimeter lens on a full frame camera or an APS-C camera. Looking forward to your experts' answers, Chris Holland. Cheers, Chris Holland. Wet on wet bokeh, Chris. I'm 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 not sure this if this is a question for Jason. 
uh, or, or, or not. I'm not sure it's even a question. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's certainly something that Chris has, has absolutely answered his own question there. Um, yes. Uh, yes. A 300mm lens on a medium format camera, when you put it onto a full frame camera or any other camera, it still remains a 300mm lens. Um, the Where crop factors come in is all to do with the relative size of one sensor compared to another. And, yeah. set, and, they, and these things are always... Uh, com well, that, it seems to me that, the, that they're always uh, compared to full frames. A full frame is 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 the only way of uh, me measuring crop. So, if you uh, a uh, micro four thirds camera um, is is a two times crop, uh, which actually I think has a quarter of the of the, of the area of a of a full frame, which 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 gives you a two times crop. So, uh, you put a, a fifty millimeter lens, or I stick with the three uh, the three hundred millimeter. So, you a three hundred millimeter lens, which is sitting on your full frame camera, when you put that onto a um, micro four thirds camera, uh, you get an image which is the equivalent view of a six hundred millimeter lens. Um, but all you're doing is actually just increasing the size of your image um, by a factor. Of, I think it's I think it's by a factor of four, um, which gives you which gives you that that uh, double magnification. Um, so you're not act, the, the lens itself isn't giving you more magnification in the slightest. It's just that you're you're yeah. stretching the image more to see it at the same uh, at, at, at the same size. If that makes any kind of sense. It, the way I look at it is um, the uh, for a given focal length, the field of view is really set by your sensor size. Yeah. Right. So, uh, right. from a requirements perspective, if if uh, if I need to design a lens with a fifty degree field of view, the first question I ask is, okay, well, what's the size of the sensor? And then I do the simple calculation to see what the focal length needs to be. Right. Right. So yeah, it's yep. it's uh, a three hundred millimeter lens is is a three hundred millimeter lens regardless of what you put it on, right, right. And if we put it on a smaller sensor, we're just essentially <clears throat> cropping. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. cropping the the. You're just cropping the angle of view that is captured by the sensor. Yes. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go on to quickly here because I want to get to dry plate. Um, I'm going to jump to. Uh, email from Ian Rosie, uh, and he says, uh, subject re projector lens competition. He says, Hello, Simon. The projector lens from Londinian cameras was there when I got home today. Quick work. Please pass my thanks and appreciation on to uh, Linden if you get the chance. Kind regards, Ian. So thank you very much, Ian. We're glad you got the lens. And, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and thanks, thanks to Lyndon as well for Lyndon absolutely for sending out so quickly as well. And I believe yeah. there's, there's one probably still in the post on, over, heading over to, to the States as we speak. All right. Uh, and last email, we have an uh, email from uh, Rob Jameson, and he says, subject Johnny's large format panorama experiment. Um, I absolutely love that Johnny is working on making a 4x5 panorama mask. Finally, someone will be walking around with a panoramic camera impressive enough to make all that high and Hasselblad X-Pan shooters jealous. I want to suggest a name for this work of art, the XXL-Pan. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cheers, Robbie J. <laughs> Robbie, I love that. And uh, <laughs> thanks very much. And it was, it was great chatting with you in person. At Central Camera about crazy about crazy camera 
panoramic experimentation. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, j- just real quick, I think I, I don't know, know how far into detail we went on this program, but I, I'm essentially going to take a crown graphic camera and I'm going to laser cut the dark slide to make it, make it into a panoramic mask. So that's the craziness that he's referring to. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, moving, moving, moving quickly forward. We want to we want to do some dry plate talk. Um, so so Jason, to swing it back around, could you tell us a bit about uh, pictoriographica? And we mentioned that um, you you started up the dry plate business in late 2017, but to me, that says you yes. had obviously been experimenting and working with dry plate and large format for probably quite some time. And then you got that crazy idea that this could be a thing and you could share it with the world and people, will, you know, if you build it, they will come. And I, it seems like that's certainly the case. Um, and I will say that I am absolutely enthralled with working with glass plate, which thus far I've only done in my Roloflex, which is a, you know, a medium format camera, right. but it's yeah. really, I'm really loving it. And I, I want, could you tell us a bit about how you got started with dry plate and a, a bit about where you are now and where things are going? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So it, as uh, I think in the intro, you mentioned that I sort of uh, segued into photography through my optics, you know, going to um, uh, amateur astronomy where I was making my own telescopes and then astrophotography um, when the, uh, and then when the kids came along, I had to drop the astro because sleep is precious. Uh, yeah. So, but like, uh, so my career started in the late nineties, early two thousands um, timeframe. And the big thing that happened, you know, right around that time was, was the introduction of digital cameras. Now I had been like every other, um, aged wise person uh, i was shooting film through the 80s 90s and uh, when digital cameras came along i was like oh that's kind of cool i see that's pretty handy you know because you don't have to worry about getting film process and all that stuff and and i was about to pull the trigger on a on a digital rebel and my boss at work said hey I, jason i want you to go characterize all these focal plane arrays that are coming out see if we can use any of them for work and so for the next several months um, I got sick and tired of focal plane arrays and digital imaging because all I did at work was take pictures of <laughs> stupid bar targets and crap like that and process it in Photoshop. And that was the last thing I wanted to do when I got home in the evening was to play in Photoshop. So I stuck shooting film and, uh, and it was great <laughs> because <laughs> things were so cheap, you know, 10 years ago yeah. or so, uh, built up a nice collection of cameras, but, um, I guess that wasn't hard enough. So a few years ago, maybe <laughs> 2015, I started looking at at dry plates where you basically do the same thing, but you make your own emulsion and following a, a, a what's a basically a pretty simple recipe to follow for for a technical type yeah. where you have to control temperatures and all that. I was like, oh well, there's that tinkering aspect that I like, and so I started doing that and. Um, got a uh, speed graphic uh, to well actually I got a really cheap $20 piece of crap camera from the 1890s plate camera that was falling apart but it it uh, it worked where it counts and 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 started doing dry plates and went through all the hard-earned lessons of 
you know, cupping glass and and wow. the, and getting the emulsion right and and fogging and and all that stuff and and sort of settled into a really nice um, emulsion. So I was doing that for myself for two or three years and started networking with other folks in the industry, like um, Denise Ross, who's put put out uh, books on dry plate uh, emulsion making and uh, making emulsions for prints. Jason, Ron, can I can I say something real quick? Can you yes. just so people know kind of where we're coming from here? Because dry plate, okay. So obviously we're it's called dry plate because there was probably something before that called wet plate. Can you yes. just give us a really quick? I mean, if two cents, three cents, whatever primer on what a dry plate is versus a wet plate, and just a little bit of the backstory, just so oh, people. Okay, know sure, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, the early uh, mid. 1800s photography process was wet plate and it was called wet plates um, and i'm being really succinct here but uh, it was called wet plate because you had to mix the chemicals and and prep your your plate which was either glass or metal take your picture and uh, uh, develop it all before the chemicals dried out because they were only sensitive when they were wet uh, dry plate came along uh, in uh, it was invented by um, a guy named Maddox, and I can never remember his first name, in 1871, where he kept the, uh, the, uh, the silver halide grains, quote-unquote, wet by suspending them in gelatin. Uh, gelatin, you know, is the same stuff that goes into jello. And, and uh, that sort of, that, that increased the convenience of photography exponentially because before then, obviously, if you had to ex expose and develop your your picture within the span of uh, a few minutes, then you had to bring your darkroom with you. Uh, with dry plate, there uh, dry plates are sensitive after the gelatin is dried, so you can you can make some plates uh, which are which were pretty much exclusively on glass. You you coat your plates, let them dry and then pack them up and take them with you to take pictures. And then you don't have to develop them until you get back home to your dark room. And so uh, when dry plates really became, really took off in the 1880s, I mean, that was the start of amateur photography there because yeah, yeah. you didn't have to be a pro. Um, and then obviously George Eastman got his start uh, coating dry plates and, and moved to film or moved to coating his, his basically adopted his dry plate emulsion to coating film and then obviously that that increased the the convenience even further and and the rest is history so dry plates kind of fit in between uh the wet plate area era of the uh, you know the tintype era and and the era of film and you know film pretty much does the same thing dry plate does except it's much more convenient so so dry plates sort of went obsolete by the middle of the 20th century except Interestingly, in imaging for uh, professional astronomical observatories, yeah, where they're uh, uh, for the observatories that take images to map the stars out uh, for astrometry, which is a measurement of the distance between stars, uh, you have to have a very accurate uh, image. And what that means is that you have to have a very flat imaging substrate and and film doesn't cut it, so they use glass plates up until the the nineties when digital imaging sort of started wow, replacing. That's crazy! Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Huh? 
So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's the, this, the, that's where dry plates sort of sit in history. And, and so obviously they weren't made, made for decades and decades. And if you wanted to shoot dry plate to take advantage of sort of the cool characteristics of the, the media and the cameras of that time frame, you had to make your own. And so that, that's what I was doing, um, you know, for the, uh, before December, 2017. So uh, in 2017, I started a new job with a new company. And I was getting pretty busy, and I had had a bunch of dry plates in my fridge that I didn't think I would get to. So I I put uh, three boxes of four by five online, just to to let other people use them. You know, put them up for sale, and they yeah. they sold in like ten minutes. And then and I <laughs> I woke up the next morning and had a bunch of messages saying, "Hey, can do you have any more? I missed out. Can you make them in different sizes and stuff." And I was like. Yeah, sure. It's Christmas vacation. Why not? Well, I ended up not getting any sleep over Christmas vacation to handle the demand, and it sort of just took off from there. So, uh, wow. so yeah. So th- that's been pretty cool. Um, it's it's been neat to share uh, another deep interest of mine, which is f- the photography and, and shooting the dry plates. And uh, you know, so I have. You can see on the website, I have a bunch of retailers that sell them sell them uh around the world actually they've traveled a lot more than i have (laughs) yeah yeah i I don't i don't know it's hard to say what exactly it is that i am enjoying so much about this quite frankly um but there there there's something about the whole process of using the dry plates that's completely different than roll film i mean i've got a freaking roll effects it's got roll in the name i could you know (laughs) i i i can put roll film in this camera very easily but the fact that there was a plate back made for this camera and i happen to have one i'm like well why not use it right yeah um Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and and it it works fantastically well, and it's a lot more difficult, and it's a lot slower, but it's really fun. And there's something about loading these single pieces of glass into these carriers and exposing them one at a time that makes the whole process of using the camera seem completely different. And it's it's really enjoyable. I mean, it's almost like a meditation to do something that takes so much time and thought, right? It's very yes. thoughtful. And and there is a definite difference to how the images look on the glass plates. And right. it, it's the fact that I guess probably they're so flat because it's glass, yeah. but also they think that there's a difference in the emulsion itself is essentially yes. gr- grainless. So it it's, it's sort of like the, this really high resolution imaging technology that's also at the same time, almost really archaic because it's literally on a piece of fragile glass. Um, yeah. And, and I've, yeah, to your point, I've, I've, I've put a lot of thought into why I like, it, cause I still love shooting dry plate and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and so in the, and there's a lot of intangibility to it. I think there's a, there's a, a holding a physical thing to it appeals to, you know, all the people out there who shoot film versus uh, looking at a digital image on screen, you know, you, right. you hold holding a physical thing, and I think with right. the glass plates, it, that's even further re- reinforced because it's right. it's a it's a solid piece of glass, right? right. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. so there's that tangibility aspect to it, and then also the emulsion itself. So the recipe I use dates back to the 1880s, and so 
Um, it has its own, it has this characteristic or unique look that sort of combines aspects of wet plate that they for it, film that came after it, but then has, has its own unique characteristics that I think was lost, you know, as the industry sort of followed customer demand to go towards, you know, orthochromatic and then panchromatic films. Right. Um, right. And and if you if you look at the the dry plates, I, and I'll catch myself doing this every once in a while. I, I well, I had a I had a fellow come up with a dry plate collection, and when we were comparing some of the dry plates in his collection, which dated from the 1880s, and comparing them to mine, they 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 had that same look. So it sort of brings back that old look that was sort of lost. I think it yeah. makes it kind of unique. And then there's the the handcrafted aspect. Um, you know, I coat. I coat these all by hand, and so they're not perfect. They're not cranked out by a machine. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, although, it's yeah. It's sort of everything that's beautiful about the analog photography world. Yes. Right. I mean like that. The, yeah, it's like the analog, just but but magnified, right? right yeah. It's amplified. like analog, analog. It's analog, it's analog, analog on analog. Analog yeah. squared. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. And I, and I do think that's really interesting because it, there are it there are variations from plate to plate. I mean, yes. I've I've noticed that some of the plates have just have a different um characteristic to them than than some of the others. And I I I really I sort of really enjoy that that aspect of you don't know exactly what you're going to get until the end, you know. Right. Yeah. There's um and that that kind of brings up sort of what's fun for me in in this endeavor is it's um yes there's a there's a plate plate variations but there's like good variations and bad variations i mean obviously you wouldn't want to pull a plate out of the box and shoot it at meter at iso 2 and get a good re result and then meter that the next one and have right like, like incredibly underexposed or overexposed yeah, sure. so one of the challenges for me has been to make sure that i can make the the batch or have a consistent batch the batch sort of look so mm. from batch to batch uh, maintain this consistency of the characteristic but then not look the the things and crafted nice where the uh, this way from the edges or you have little um, imperfections and stuff that are just due solely to the handcrafted right process so it's sort of a sort of a neat sort of twist on it and it's required me to um become much more uh, knowledgeable in, you know, have a deeper knowledge of emulsion making that sort of appeals to the tinkerer in me. Yeah. It's like this whole new topic of, of science <laughs> that, that I can tap into. And so, yeah, I just I, like I, when I, <laughs> just like when I taught myself lens design, it's, it's sort of the same thing. So. Sure. And I, we could, I mean, I know that I could easily spend another hour with you talking just about dry plate. Um, yeah, but I, I'm sure that will be a topic for another show or perhaps Simon on another podcast. Well, ex exactly. Um, because, because Jason, you, you don't, act, you don't realize this at the moment, but you, you, you will be appearing on the large format photography podcast, which, uh, I, I co-host with Andrew Bartram and Andrew is somebody that does lots of different kinds of alternative ways of printing and things. So I can just imagine awesome. just great. how many questions he'll have for you, for you on that. Yeah. 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 But I, I guess what, what I wanted to just, um, maybe think about is the fact that you are literally hand coating yeah. pieces of glass one at a time, <laughs> and I think that's incredible. Right. That so when, when, yeah, 
So let, let me give you a, a feel for how last year went down, uh, <laughs> being over 10,000 this year. And it basically, I, <laughs> I lost so much sleep. I actually have a couple of uh, local high school students that I hired on to help me handle the demand. Wow. One of the one of the kids coats and preps the glass or cuts and preps the glass, and the other one um, she's a she's homeschooled, so she does her her classwork, uh, you know, for a couple three hours a day, and then she comes over and uh, coats a bunch of the plates. And, wow. and that's really nice that she does that because she does that while I'm at work and then I come home and I box them as wow. opposed to me, uh, you know, starting at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. like I like I had been doing and, and not getting done until 2 or 3 in the morning just to wake <laughs> up at 5 o'clock to start my day again. Wow. So, um, so chances are, you know, unless she's on vacation or something like that, then then you're getting plates coated either from myself or a, or a high school student who had to figure out, you know, I taught how to do it. So it's, it's very technique intensive, intensive, but, but uh, yeah. she's awesome for coating that. That's, that's amazing. Uh, but yes, there's, it's a crap ton of plates that we've, we crank out. It's <laughs> just incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say, that's a technical that, term. I'm, I'm just going to say, Jason, that the, the internet is only just hanging in there at the moment so we could we're just about making you out but i think that's a i think we should probably call it a day before we completely lose you yes um and uh and yes we we definitely need to uh, continue <laughs> yeah. this conversation in, in the large format photography <laughs> podcast and perhaps uh, john you might even want to come along and uh, join in sure. with that discussion as well so uh, yeah absolutely uh, yeah. Um, yeah so yeah when we get yeah, offline Carl, we'll... invited. sorry carl <laughs> <laughs> well, Carl's gone to sleep because we're talking large format. Yeah, so Carl's that, buying lenses fine. on eBay right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, yeah, so that, that's a there's a whole subject there about large format lenses and dry plate yeah. and alternative processes to, to to be had there. So I'll look forward to that. So. Um, yeah, while whilst you're still you can we can hear you um thank you really so much for being with us today because it's been quite extraordinary some of the uh some of the revelations we've had and um and we've had to reset our opinions on a, on a lot of things as well today which has just been incredible so thank you jason uh you know it's been my pleasure i love i love this stuff i love uh optical design and i like the dry plates uh you know obviously it's my passion otherwise i wouldn't be making two careers out of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I love talking shop like this stuff. It's great. And, and actually that there was something we were talking before we started uh, the, the recording uh, because we, we realized um, in the, 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 the pre-show, if you like, uh, the, the depth of knowledge that you, you have in lenses and why things do certain things and so on. Um, and we, we agreed that if people were to send any very specific questions about lens design and um, that they'll be able to email those questions into the show and then we'll uh, we'll get in touch with you and do like mini segments um to uh, to record um uh, the, those questions being asked and then your your answers given so we can put those uh, tag them either into the show or into the end we don't don't really know because we just thought this one up so if there's anybody out there uh, that wants uh, a burning question about any kind of lens design uh, asking to jason then uh, send it to us on an email and we'll put it to jason and we'll put it out there in a in a future show sure 
Yeah. Okay, so that, that's good. And finally, before we uh, go round the table, not that we're in one place, uh, saying about how we can follow each other and shout outs and things like that, um, I just wish to thank those uh, people that have donated to the show. Um, in particular, this week, uh, the first one I'm going to read out is uh, for, from Nigel Cliff. Um, and uh, who's, who's basically, we, we're pretty much blaming Nigel for, for the show that actually happened last week. Because if it wasn't for Nigel uh, donating instead to our show, but um, to the Hypersensitive yeah. Photographers podcast, then last week's right. show could have been actually... <laughs> normal <laughs> so a normal show exactly yeah. and yeah. Uh, so that was all nigel's fault and he's now strangely trying to take credit for that and thinks that we actually owe him something for, for, for doing that um no, pretty no. sure nigel and m and uh and and hamish might have been all in on this together just that's my theory i think there's well actually we do know there's a connection between nigel and uh and yes, hamish because all right he did lend him an m6 so yeah, yeah so there yeah. you go. All, it's all the pieces have fallen into place it is it is and yeah. uh so uh next one is uh, i'm delighted to say we have a new uh, recurring um how long for who knows but uh at this moment we have a new recurring uh, donator to us um and uh, that is brian Woolworth. Um, and he says your show has given me more gas than 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 that time i had brussels sprouts wrapped in cabbage in a, in a bowl of baked beans uh, <laughs> so, um, yes uh, that's my kind of guy it is so uh, well, well welcome brian thank you for that and uh, it's really appreciated um and sorry about the gas and uh then we got robbie J, who we had a, a you read a letter out earlier. Uh, thanks for another great show, guys. Loved the podcast. And uh, finally, we got uh, Chris Holland um, who's saying, please read my read my question out. <laughs> it to us as well. Uh, I was going to say, Chris. Thank you, know, you Chris. You, you, don't, you don't have to send us money for us to read a question out, but, uh, <laughs> but thanks all the same. Um, okay, so uh, that's it for um, the coffee uh, supporters this week. And if you want to donate to us, it's really appreciated because it does help us. And that is coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com, and you just do a search for Classic Lenses Podcast, and you'll you'll find our page there. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's round things off. Um, hopefully, uh, Jason's audio is still in one piece. Um, so, Jason, yes. um, I don't know if you have any. We haven't we haven't really prepped you to say the um, if about shout outs and things. So you may not have a shout out, and that, which is which is fine. But if you do, this is a good time. And secondly, if you can uh, let our listeners know how they can. Uh, follow your work and direct you to your website and, and so on. Sure. Well, a big shout out to all the people who have uh, supported my endeavor by um, allowing me to share the dry plates with them, you know, buying plates and, and checking them out and stuff and, and providing feedback that rolls back into them. So I really appreciate all the, all the folks out there who have, uh, you know, made Pictoria Graphica happen because all I do is just coat the plates. You guys are the ones who shoot them. And then, um, yes, so also you can, uh, I have a website, www.pictoriographica.com. And there you can sign up for a newsletter or you can ping me with questions. And um, one of the couple of the neat things coming up, one is that I'm working with Steve Lloyd of Chroma Camera to make new dry plate holders. Ooh. Uh, so because the, the, uh, they haven't been made for decades. Yeah, and so we're going to do a Kickstarter here sometime this year. Hopefully, fingers crossed uh, for to for four by five, five by seven, eight by tens, 
wow. then after the Kickstarter, we'll we'll basically be able to support any size you need. And then also, I'm in the process of finalizing the release of a of a ASA 25 orthochromatic emulsion. So there'll be a new line of plates coming uh, out with them. So cool. that should be fun. Cool. Wow. Uh, just hey, Jason. I just got to say, yeah. yesterday in Central Camera, I had a guy asking me if I had any uh 12 by 20 plate holders so there you go for his yep. banquet camera so they're yep. definitely they're definitely uh people are out there you know it. absolutely yeah that's cool very that's great cool. right well uh, thank you again jason um johnny do you want to uh any shout outs and uh i, I, I do actually yeah i, I want to do a shout out this was actually mentioned in um last week's episode I think we say episode and quote it quotes at this point as an episode, like psychotic episode, right? Um, break from reality episode. Anyway, last week's episode, I, I mentioned the book I received from Chuck Oregor of Austin, Texas, a uh, book called Graflex Graphic Photography, the master book for the larger camera. So Chuck sent this book to me. And basically said, hey, you know, I've had this book for ages and ages and ages. I thought you might enjoy it. I, I you know, wanted to send it your way. Um, and I am enjoying this book like crazy. And I wanted to just, since it might have gotten lost in the insanity of the last program, uh, Chuck, I wanted to say thank you very much. And uh, I am definitely appreciating this book. It's really cool. So thank you very much for that. Okay. And uh, so how can people keep up with you? Things like that. Uh, oh, you can keep up with me um, uh, online uh, uh, on Instagram. I'm at System Photography. I am actually going to be posting glass plate images the next few days here. So I've got another batch of glass plates that are um, ready to scan. And I'm going to do that today. So you will see those over the next few days. Awesome. Um, yeah. So following right on our conversation here today, I've got some new glass plate images coming up. Um, you can also uh, talk to me in person at Central Camera Company in Chicago. You can find me there every day except for Sunday and Monday. Um, and you can also keep up with uh, us on Instagram at um, where is that, Simon? <laughs> well, we've, we've we've got our own widget which doesn't really exist. And no, then, no, I was going to talk about yeah, that best vintage lens. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, on Instagram, if you could please tag your images with um, hashtag classic lenses and hashtag best vintage lens, and if you do that, you will get a chance to get a nice shout out from the fine folks over at Best Vintage Lens, who I should probably say I didn't realize this until I guess yesterday, but they. Um, they featured one of my images yesterday and that was really cool and unexpected. So, so it does happen. Uh, so, so tag your images with a uh, best vintage lens and Ricardo and the good folks over at best vintage lens will um, possibly feature your work on their Instagram account. I was going to say cool. that's, that's particularly good because we all got featured when we first had our little uh, connection, if you like. Um, yeah. and, and then it was a case of uh, any more, well, you've had your free goes now. So and the, the rest, the rest of them are going to be on merit. And you're doing that. That's why exactly I was so happened. surprised yeah. considering how meritless the last two episodes of the classic lenses podcast have been from a best vintage lens perspective. So, um, so, so thank you very much folks at best vintage lens. Very cool. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, also, also very important. Uh, make sure that if you follow this podcast, um, you 
please please visit us at classiclensespodcast.com. That's where you will find each episode of this podcast. That's where you will find all the notes and excellent things uh, that go along with this podcast, all the details, all the goodness. So make sure you uh, you catch up with, with us over there to get the most out of each Classic Lenses podcast episode experience. Ex- excellent. And uh, Carl, how can people keep up with you? <laughs> I think Carl's gone. I think he has gone, yeah. He's, Carl, he's, Carl. He's, 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 his picture's there, but... Yeah, was, yeah. I'm going to take a screen capture. I'm just doing this right now. I'm taking a screen capture of Carl muted because All Carl. Right, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not gone. I'm not. I'm not gone. <laughs> He's I'm not gone. What were you when doing gets, there, Carl? Hey, when it gets boring, doing, man, buddy? I mute it and I'm on to doing other things. So, um, <laughs> Jason, thank you, know, you for being Carl on. checked out for the last. I 10 checked minutes. out. Thanks for being on the show, Jason. I, I appreciate <laughs> it. It was great. No, it was really the. The explanation of a lot of the things that I've wondered and I bet others have about lenses that many of us use. It was great. You can reach me at um, Instagram. It's just uh, all lowercase Carl underscore Havens. And then on Flickr, it's Carl Havens. And um, of course, on the Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook page, which will have its name changed back to what it's supposed to be soon. And um, I think that's it. Okay. Um, actually, I think we've probably still got about 20 days left of, of the group in, our, in our group. We just, you're just willing it to be nearly over, but it's not yeah, it no. halfway yet. No, not even. Okay. Um, okay, and uh, I can be found on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic, on Twitter as Simon4. Um, I've also got an eBay shop. Uh, if you do a search for It's Fozzy, uh, that's a code, eBay.co.uk site. Um, although, interesting enough, that site will be going on holiday for a week because I'm going on holiday, and which leads us to another point because Carl isn't going to be around next week either. So we're having a two-week break. Oh, whoa, whoa, what about the Johnny Solo show? Oh, you don't fine. think Are I'm just going to put out some crazy-ass oh. podcast on my own next week? Sure. Oh, you never well, that? there you go. That's that's breaking news for all of us here. <laughs> <laughs> the real, the real, real classic lenses podcast wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> you've, 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 we've, we've all heard it first. Um, there will be another show next week. Uh, <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> I'm worried. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll be in a different country. Carl won't be around, and uh, Johnny's running the shop. So yes who knows who knows what's going to happen next week so um finally um i want to thank kevin mcleod for our music um from incompetech.com our music called octo blues um and that's it so i was going to say we'll we'll be back in two weeks but it sounds like we will be back next week so uh i hope you enjoyed the show i hope you enjoy next week's show and it'll be great when we're all back and we can talk to you again so goodbye I just pulled that out of my ass. I know what happened. I just pulled that straight out of my butthole. I have no idea. (laughs) I could, I mean. (laughs) So, Jason, what are you doing next Sunday? (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Have you you listened to any of our shows, uh, Jason? No, so if you have any uh, interesting <laughs> questions or surprises, then I will. No, no, that's that's fine. It, <laughs> no, it, we're I we're mean, all feeling better better that you haven't that. actually listened to us at this point. <laughs> yeah, 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 you still have respect for us, so that's great. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, don't don't ever listen to the first show, and don't ever listen to the 
And don't ever listen to last week's show. Or, or the one before for that matter. Or the one yeah. Be- yeah, the one before. Don't listen to the Actually, you know what? Just just skip the entire thing. Just Yeah, that's right. Know, yeah, it's just don't bother. It all starts from there. Um, yep. Uh, the, other, <clears throat> the other reason for asking you that question, Jason, is uh, uh, because I'm, I'm going to be... Um, well, it's it's customary for, for me to thank um, our previous guest or guests yes. um, for the previous show. Um, whereas last week, as we were alluding to there... Um, <laughs> It's a, it's a, yeah. It's it's hard to describe exactly what last week's show was, but we knew, we knew that it wasn't going to go uh, to plan, and we knew that it was going to get completely hijacked uh, by by two guys from, <laughs> from from another podcast, and we let it go, and we 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 we're quite happy to do that. Um, but I'm 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 going to be not as nice to our previous guests as I, as I would normally be, and uh, and I don't want you to think that that's uh, going to happen to you next I, week. I like that an important part of an engineer's job is managing expectations <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. well, I'm, a, I'm a former project manager so i, I understand oh there you go these things yeah <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah.